Well, this morning we're looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me uh, to that chapter. And that can be found on page number, I'm pretty sure it's around 1500 because that's where we've been the last couple weeks. Uh, 1,501. And again, we're looking at the Beatitudes. We'll be looking at chapter 5, verse 1, uh, through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd like to start out with just a a brief review of some of the... um, uh, truths that we've uncovered the last couple of weeks. Uh, The first thing is that the kingdom of God is an invisible realm. We become part of the kingdom of God by simply turning from our sin to God for his mercy and believing all of the promises that God offers to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how we become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who enters that kingdom as a citizen is blessed. Because all of the promises that come to us in Christ belong to us simply because we are citizens of the kingdom. Our debt of sin has been canceled. Christ's perfect record of righteousness is given to us. We're covered in his robes of righteousness. So it's not as if, it's not just as if we'd never sinned. It's as if we had perfectly loved our neighbor and perfectly loved God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that's not all. When someone enters the kingdom of heaven, he or she is no longer the same person that they were before. When we enter the kingdom of heaven, the scriptures talk about this being an experience of going from death to life. We are adopted. We were once orphans, 
But now we've been adopted into the family of God. And God is our loving Heavenly Father. We become a new creation. Christ's life is inside of us, and we live our life in Him. It's like when you take hydrogen, which is a gas, and oxygen, which is also a gas, and you take two parts of hydrogen and one part of oxygen, and you combine them together, what do you get? Water. I mean, think about that. It's a gas you can't even see. You don't even know it's there. But then when you mix those two things together, something completely different is there. And it's permanent. And it's dramatic. Water, this this life-giving liquid that we desperately need. We can now touch it and taste it. It's so different. When we become a Christian, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, the change is not like adding an addition on to our house. It's being transformed into something new. It's, as, it's every bit as complete and permanent and dramatic of a change as what happens when hydrogen and oxygen become water. That's the kind of metamorphosis that happens when we are united to Christ. It's the whole caterpillar butterfly thing. And the blessings of the kingdom of God are not just that we are forgiven and that God covers us with the robes of Christ's righteousness. The blessings of the kingdom of God also include the fact that we are a new creation. We are something totally and completely and permanently different than we were before. And so Jesus goes up on this mountainside and he calls his disciples to himself and he sits down and he begins to teach them about all of the wonderful blessings that are now theirs if they are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And let's not miss this either. So here's Jesus teaching about the blessed life authoritatively as if what he's about to say is really truly what the blessed life in this fallen world is really like philosophers and spiritual leaders and political leaders have been debating what truly is the blessed life for centuries before Jesus and centuries after and yet here Jesus is authoritatively declaring that he knows So he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is no human being who on their own has anything to offer God to gain his favor. There is no human being who on their own can obtain anything to offer God, to earn God's favor. Not only do we not have anything, but there's no possibility of ever gaining something that we can bring to God and we can say that he owes us anything or that somehow we've even satisfied his standard. Our situation before God is like trying to jump out of a bottomless pit. Just imagine that. It's a bottomless pit. You're falling The circle of light at the top is getting smaller. You have no idea what you're falling into. 
you're freaking out, you're panicking, you're trying to figure out, but you have nowhere to start. In this condition, there's no hope of heaven, there's no anchor for our soul, we're like a tumbleweed blowing in the wind wherever it takes us, and Jesus says, blessed are you when you realize that you're like that. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because on our own, we are prideful. I think about my children when I would want to help them with something. No, daddy, I do it. We don't like help. Because if somebody comes along and assists us, that means that we're dependent on them. Or that means somehow we owe them. And we want to be free of all those kind of chains and shackles. We want to be our own person. We want to earn it ourselves. We want to say that I did it. I did it my way, right? Which is why the world says the kingdom of heaven is for the strong and for those who've been good enough and for those whose lives have spiritual value. The world says that the kingdom of heaven definitely belongs to the religious and to the wise. And hey, maybe it can belong to you too if you're sincere enough or if you want it bad enough or if you meet these certain obligations which you can never know if you've ever fully met because if you're anything like me, you're constantly aware of your failure. But Jesus says the kingdom belongs to those who realize they have nothing to give to God. Those who come to him completely dependent on his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. And then he goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This statement is intimately connected to the previous one. We're not just spiritually poor because we are victims and someone robbed us of our spiritual strength and God is kind enough to come and give us a leg up and help us out. No, we are the criminals. We have torn down our own house. God has given us life and breath and beauty and wonder and our most basic crime is that we're not even grateful to him for all that he's given us. In fact, if we're honest, most of us probably spend most of our time concerned about the things of this world that we want or that we don't have than we do stopping and pausing and giving God thanks for all of the wonderful gifts that he has blessed us with. And not only that, but we routinely and willfully defy God's law, and that's because we just don't trust him. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden all over again. We think that somehow his law is there to cause us to jump through some hoops. We don't, we don't really believe that he's given it to us because he loves us. And then we may feel guilty for the things that we do do when we break his law, but so many times it's usually not enough to keep us from returning to our rebellion again. And Jesus is saying, the person who is blessed sees this reality they see the fact of their spiritual poverty. They understand that they're totally responsible for it. And they mourn. They mourn. They don't try to justify it. They don't try to explain it away. They don't offer excuses anymore. They just mourn. 
And sorrow over what we actually are is a profound kind of mourning. And then we, and then we grow from there and we go from mourning our own sin to, to mourning what our sin cost God to mourning the effects of our sin on ourselves and on others. This is what the catechism means when it calls sin misery. And when we see our spiritual poverty and all that we've done to ourselves and when we see how good God is, that he is loving and patient and kind and generous and he, and he gives us our law, his law not to take away our joy, but so that we might live rightly as the kind of creature that we actually are. And when we see all that we've done in response to his goodness is turn our backs on him over and over again, we mourn. And then when we see our spiritual poverty and our responsibility for it, and then we look around the world and we see the same tragedy that's inside my heart is inside everybody else's heart too. And that's where all this heartache and conflict is coming from and and then we just mourn we begin to mourn for the sin in others so instead of judging them for how their sin means they didn't measure up to our personal standard of whatever we just we just mourn There is so much goodness and beauty in this world and each one of us are made in the image of God and because of that, we can't help but mourn the sin pouring out of our own hearts and the hearts of everyone around us. And Jesus says when we mourn for spiritual poverty like this, he says we will be comforted. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I have wept for my own sin or for the consequences of sin in this world. And I have experienced the Holy Spirit in that moment through my tears, meet me. And, and so somehow I, at the same time, I'm, I have this profound sadness and yet also this profound sense that, that it's gonna be okay at the same time. But that's a fleeting experience in this life. But God promises that one day there will be no more, there will be no more pain, there'll be no more tears, and there'll be no more mourning. And we look forward to that day, knowing that our Savior mourned like this too, uh, probably more deeply than you and I ever could. Uh, there's this scene a few days before he goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world and he's standing and he looks over Jerusalem and he says this, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. They weren't willing because they didn't see their spiritual poverty, they weren't mourning over it, but Jesus was, he was. But our world says that the blessed life is the happy life, the life when all is well and all is great and, and we're happy and we're in control and we're getting all the things that we want. And the world mourns not over sin and sorrow that sin brings into this world, but the world mourns over the things that they desired 
being taken away from them or not given to them. And there's no comfort for that kind of mourning. Then Jesus goes on. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This word translated meek could be translated humble or gentle. In fact, later on in Matthew, Jesus will use this word to describe himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So being meek is not being weak. It's not being timid or non-confrontational. A meek person is someone who relates to the world and to others with, with kindness and with patience. And I always think about meeting that person. I know I can think of a few people who are like this, and, and when I'm with them and they're talking to me, I've got this feeling that, that they actually care about me. And and, and they're listening to what I have to say, and, and they're asking questions, and I, those people make you feel so good. They're, they're the kind of person that when you're with them, you, you can stop and think like, man, I really believe that this person isn't thinking in the back of their mind that they have somewhere else that they'd rather be. They're just right there in the moment loving you. A meek person realizes their spiritual poverty and that everything they have is a gift from God, a meek person mourns over their own sin so they're aware of it and they're careful for it. They're watching so it's not leaking out of them hurting other people. A meek person knows that sin is raging in the heart of everyone else around them and so they lead with compassion and kindness because they know that love is the only thing that really melts the heart of another person. In Romans, Paul says this, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And so in this verse, Paul is telling us to be meek. Right? The, the, the meek person knows their weaknesses, they know their sin, they know their strengths, and they know their gifts. And so they're on guard against their weaknesses, they're wise about those things in their life, and then they're using their gifts and their strengths to bless others. The meek person is the one who can accept life on God's terms, whatever comes their way, and who can still trust God and, and love others, which is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He trusted his Father all the way to death on the cross. And Jesus wasn't timid, but Jesus was meek. But the world says that we must be powerful and strong. The world says we must stand our ground Draw clear boundaries. We must always project strength. Power is king. But Jesus says it's the meek who are blessed and who will ultimately inherit the earth. Next, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. filled. There's some debate here about the kind of righteousness that uh, Jesus is speaking about here. Is this, is this the kind of righteousness where we recognize our nakedness and our shame uh, before God because of our sin and, and we're hungering and thirsting for Jesus to come and to give us his perfect righteousness so that we can hide and, and be covered up in everything that he has done for us? Or is this the kind of righteousness where we actually long to live a holy life? 
where we recognize the misery of sin and, and we want to be more loving and more patient and more kind and more generous and more self-sacrificial. And, and we're sick over our sin and we long to be different. We want a changed character. We, we read the Bible where it talks about how as Christians we're, we're freed from slavery to sin, yet we still hear the screams and the whips of our slave master and we want to be free. Or is this the person who looks at the world and sees the injustice all around? They see the poor and the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized being shoved to the side and constantly pushed down. And there's something that wells up inside them that says, this isn't right. They long, as Martin Luther King reminded us, to see justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It doesn't seem we need to decide between the three. All three ideas are legitimately present here because the one who is poor in spirit, mourning and meek, is the one who knows they need Jesus' righteousness to cover them. And then they long to also be righteous themselves and they long to also see the world set right. That's why Jesus will later teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we actually need all three. Because if you think about it, if all we're concerned about is the righteousness that Jesus gives us that covers our sin and takes away our guilt, if that's the only thing that we care about, then, then that can easily slip into, sweet, Jesus forgave all my sins, I can live however I want, I can do whatever I want. Or if all we're concerned about is actual lived out righteousness, where we're, we're living a holy life, and we're not worried about our sins being forgiven or the, the injustices of this world, that can easily slip into, I'm living a holy life because, man, if you, if you do all the right things, things tend to go well for you. And you're doing it out of, you know, our own pride or our own desire for the, the good results. Or we're doing it because somehow we think that it's earning God's favor. And pretty soon we're relating to God based on his law as opposed to relating to him as a heavenly father. And then there's the person who's worried about the injustices in the world. And if that's all we're concerned about, there's a danger of forgetting about the sin in our own heart. This kind of person can become self-righteous and forget that all the sin they see on display all around them, hurting everyone, is actually inside them too. And they can tend to forget that God is in control and he's building his kingdom in spite of those injustices. And Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And I, I always kind of think, of my, I'm a merciful person. And so as I was writing this, I thought, what's an example of mercy? And I thought about, okay, imagine your spouse comes home. And they've had a hard day, and, and they're snapping, and they're kind of biting at you. And when that happens, everything in me wants to kind of snap back, right? Or give them the cold shoulder and, and pretend like, hey, yeah, you can't treat me like that. But a merciful person w- would see that moment and they would say something like this. Um, what are we at here? It seems like you could use some rest. I'll make dinner. I'll, I'll do homework with the kids. Why don't you Relax. 
I mean, probably none of us do that. Because it's so hard. It's so hard. We all want mercy, but it's so hard to be merciful. And, and I actually want to make something very clear here. Just look at that verse on the screen right now. Jesus is saying that we have to be merciful in order to be shown mercy. He's definitely saying that, or else we have to do violence to the language. If we're not merciful, then we will not ultimately be shown mercy. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But wait a minute, you say, if that were the case, then wouldn't that mean I'm earning my salvation by being merciful? Pastor Patrick, if I have to be merciful in order to receive God's mercy, wouldn't that mean I'm earning God's mercy by being merciful? No. No, because our being merciful is a blessing of the kingdom. People who have been welcomed into the kingdom by recognizing their spiritual poverty and turning to God for mercy and forgiveness are made into merciful people. Jesus is saying that one of the free promises of grace that comes from being a citizen of God's kingdom is that we are merciful because only the merciful will be shown mercy. And he promises to make us merciful. And he goes on and he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Well, someone who's pure in heart is someone whose mind and heart are devoted to God. They're they're loyal to him. They long to please him, not only with a life of love and service, but also with their thoughts and their feelings. And only the pure in heart will see God. The psalmist says the same thing. He says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, the answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Wow, so do I have to have a pure heart in order to see God? Absolutely we do. No one whose heart is filled with lust and sin is going to see God. It's only those who have clean hands and a pure heart, the psalmist says. Well, I thought I was saved by grace through faith, Pastor Patrick, and not by works. Yes, of course you were. But you're saying that I have to have a pure heart in order to see God. Yes, of course you do. And God welcomes you into his kingdom by grace through faith. You don't earn any of it. We come just as we are. But Jesus is telling us here that one of God's many promises is that he will not leave us as we are. God promises to forgive all of our sin And one of the blessings of the kingdom is that he will also give us a pure heart so that we can see God. You can't give yourself a pure heart. Then he goes on, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Well, a peacemaker is someone who establishes peace between people, either between two people or two groups of people. They're the kind of person who enters into the conflict. And if possible, they bring peace. Paul says in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So peacemaking isn't always successful, but if possible, so far as it depends on us, 
A peacemaker brings healing and wholeness and rest. They don't stir the pot. They don't gossip. And they share the good news of free salvation in Jesus Christ because a peacemaker not only wants peace between others, they also want to have peace with God for others. And again, as with the other blessings, Jesus is saying that becoming a peacemaker is another promised blessing of the kingdom. If we put our faith in Jesus and he brings us into the kingdom, he promises to make us into a peacemaker. Finally, we'll take the uh, last three verses together. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Jesus is not saying that we're not Christians unless we're persecuted. Sometimes people spin this verse that way. He is not saying persecution is a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven. Although other scriptures make it very clear that as Christians we can expect suffering and persecution. No, what Jesus is saying here is that those who are persecuted experience a particular kind of temptation. If we're being persecuted and we're being insulted for doing the right thing, or someone speaking evil against us simply because we name the name of Christ, and, and then we're experiencing persecution for that, the temptation is going to be to doubt that God loves us. We're going to doubt in that moment God's goodness to us, and we might be tempted to believe that God has abandoned us or that he's punishing us and that somehow he's no longer our loving father. And Jesus wants his people to know that being persecuted for living a righteous life or for naming the name of Jesus is actually a sign that we are in the kingdom of heaven. And we can rest assured that there is a reward waiting for us in heaven that far outweighs the pain of whatever we're facing right now. Okay, I've, uh, I've touched on this some, but I want to close with this question so it's all very clear in our minds. With these Beatitudes, is Jesus saying that all these things are what we have to do in order to be blessed? Or is Jesus saying that the blessing is that what we now are, the blessing is what we now are because we are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Let me ask that a different way. Is this what we have to do to be blessed? Or is this what the blessing makes us into? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Jesus could not be more clear. Only the poor in spirit, only those who mourn, only the meek, only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, only the merciful, only the pure in heart, and only the peacemakers are truly blessed. Yet at the same time, if we had to make ourselves into mourning, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we would not actually be poor in spirit anymore, would we? Right? 
If we needed to become these things first so that we could have the blessing, then we would be spiritually rich, and these would no longer be blessings, they would be wages. So this is how it works. When we enter the kingdom of heaven by simply turning from our sin to God, trusting in his promises, he offers to us in Christ all these wonderful blessings, and we receive those promises by faith. And everything that God offers in Christ belongs to us the moment we simply believe and the kingdom is ours. Okay? But what God offers us is not just forgiveness. He promises to raise us from the dead, to free us from slavery to sin, to make us into a new creation, to put his spirit inside us and to write his law on our heart so we desire to obey it. And we now love him because he first loved us. When we believe the good news of the kingdom, we believe not only that God has wiped away our debt of sin, but that he is making us into a rightful citizen of the kingdom. We believe that he's adopted us into the family of God and that he is going to cause us to resemble that family. These are the promises of the gospel. And we receive all of these promises by faith when we become a Christian. That's why it's a blessing. And our citizenship in the kingdom is not dependent on us having those blessings at the beginning. Our citizenship in the kingdom happens when we recognize our spiritual poverty, repent of our sins, believe the promises of God in Christ. That's when we're in the kingdom. And then these are the blessings of the kingdom. These are the things Jesus is promising to bless us with as people who are already part of his kingdom by faith alone. I don't have this on the screen. I thought of this this morning when I was going over this, but there's a John Newton quote, and it goes like this. He says, uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, for those of you who don't know. He says, uh, I know I'm not what I should be. I know I'm not what I will be. But I know I'm not what I once was. And the reason he knows what, that he's not what he once was is because these blessings are beginning to grow and take hold in his life. And the encouragement that that is for sinners like us is profound. Which actually begs another question, and here it is. What if I'm not experiencing these blessings? What if I don't really mourn over my spiritual poverty that much? What if, in fact, if I'm honest, I indulge my sin often, sometimes I plan to do it, even when I know it displeases God? What if I'm not very meek, I get angry and find myself manipulating other people and using whatever power and influence I have for my own selfishness? What if I don't really hunger and thirst for righteousness all that much, I actually hunger and thirst for the things of this world that I want, and pretty much all the time, and I hunger and thirst for comfort and pleasure, but I also want to somehow get through it all with no hell. I'm rarely, if ever, merciful. My heart is filled with lust for things of this world, and I find myself stirring up more conflict than peace. What if that's me? Well, if that's you, then all you have to do is repent and believe. That's it. That's it. And I'm not even saying you're not a Christian. All I'm saying is, if that's you, all you have to do is turn to God from your sin, receive his mercy and forgiveness by faith, 
and believe that he will forgive you and that he will transform you and that he will give you all of these blessings of the kingdom that he's talked about here. See, our failure has the same solution whether we're a Christian or not. To become a Christian, we simply turn to God in repentance for his mercy and forgiveness, and then we believe that he's forgiven us and that he will give us all these blessings. And then then for those who are already Christians, that process just repeats itself over and over again. The Christian life is a life of constantly turning from our sin to God for his mercy and believing that he forgives us and believing that he will transform us. And if you're the person who is always confessing the same sin over and over and over again, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. It just means you haven't believed the gospel in that area, that he can actually free you from that. And that he promises holiness for his people. Friends, it's so important to get this straight as we move into the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to take the law from the Old Testament and he's going to crank it up 500 degrees. And it will be so easy to get ourselves spinning thinking that, oh no, I am nothing like the person that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to hold two things that seem like they can't go together. We have to hold them together as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. One is that we're never going to be this and that only Jesus is the person who is described here on the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, this is what he's making us into. And our failure causes us to doubt that that's what he's making us into. But yet his mercy and his grace is a thing that we return to for forgiveness for our failure and to be reminded of his promise to make us into this. And actually, by keeping the bar so high with the law, Jesus invites us into this intimate, moment-by-moment relationship with him where we're constantly reminded of his forgiveness and grace and constantly desiring to be who he says we are and who he is making us into. And that is the posture that we have to have as we approach everything that Jesus is about to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we desperately need your grace. We all need your grace to be reminded that our condition before you is based completely on what Christ has done for us but that you have promised, you have promised to move in our lives in a powerful way so that we would become the person that you say we are, that we might love others well, that we might fight injustice in this world, and that we might know that we are your child with greater confidence. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.